Good people of Uteberg, have you ever burned your hand in the fire? Even one finger made raw by the flame will torment you throughout the night. Is it not so? Imagine then, your entire body burning. Not for one sleepless night, not for a week, but for all eternity. Are we to be spared the fires of damnation on the judgment day? Tonight, your Pope, the Vicar of Christ, sends you a gift. A gift to save you from such fires. A special indulgence granted for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome, where the bones of the apostles lie mouldering, exposed to wind and rain, desecrated by wild animals. Take heed the words of your Holy Father who says, lay a stone for St. Peter's and you lay the foundation for your own salvation and happiness in heaven. How? With this indulgence. When? Tonight. And only tonight. Seek the Lord while he is near. Here is your raft. Take hold. Thankfully, while some of the theology is still there within the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church rejected Johann Tetzel, who was the guy you saw there, and kind of retired him after Luther protested at what he was doing. We're in this series uh, that we are calling Reformation, looking at uh, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and what it is that Protestant churches, whether it's Anglican or Presbyterian or Baptist or Salvation Army, Pentecost, what we all kind of believe in as a result of this reformation that occurred 500 years ago. So a few weeks ago, we kicked off the series, and I, I told the story a little bit of Martin Luther, who was the, the primary mover, the first one out of a, a whole series of reformers. And then after that, we've been working through what are called the five solas, or the five key theological uh, rocks on which the Protestant Reformation was built. And we've done three of these so far, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone. And today we come to this fourth one, sola fide, or faith alone. What does it mean to be saved by faith alone? And this is a good moment to just pause and understand that the solas were never meant to stand by themselves. So we're going through them one at a time to explain each one, but the reformers would say you actually have to understand all of them together. They don't stand in isolation from one another. So the reason we believe in grace alone is because of what Jesus has done as our mediator in Christ alone. And the reason we hold to those is because we believe what Scripture has taught. And so they all kind of fit together and work together, and you can't isolate one out by itself. And that's especially important today, 
Because as we come to this fourth one that we're on today, uh, sola fide, or faith alone, what we have to understand is that you cannot understand faith alone, alone. Faith alone does not stand by itself. Faith alone goes with these other ones. It's uh, almost more than any of the others. In fact, faith alone will sit with the other two in the middle there, Christ alone and grace alone, very snugly. The reformers would describe salvation this way, and this is the way I want us to understand the concept of faith alone today, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the Reformation definition of what salvation looks like. And those prepositions, the little words at the beginning there, by, through, in, are very important to a proper understanding of what it means to be saved. We can't talk about faith in isolation because faith is based on grace and faith is centered in Jesus. And so we need to understand today faith alone in the context of God's grace alone and the work that Jesus has done as our mediator. So I want to unpack this idea, this, this uh, Protestant Reformation understanding of salvation, and I want to do it out of one of the most important passages on the Bible on this whole topic. In fact, it's the passage that Martin Luther said is the chief point and the very central place, not only of the epistle to the Romans, but in fact of the entire Bible. If you ask Luther, what is the one passage you really need to understand if you were to understand what it is to be saved, he said it's this passage. And the passage is Romans 3, 21 to 26. So if you've got a Bible, I would love you to come with me to that passage, Romans 3, whether it's a paper Bible, um, an iPad, uh, the app on your phone, whichever works for you is fine. But I want us to look together at at this um, series of verses in Romans chapter 3. What I want to do today is I'm going to read the passage in a minute, and then I just want to unpack the passage so that we can clearly see the way that the Apostle Paul puts his argument together. There's four kind of key steps that he makes in describing how salvation by faith alone works. So I want to make sure we follow that and understand that, and then I want to talk about some of the debates that the Reformers had in defending this doctrine that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you've got Romans 3 in front of you on your phone or in a Bible, um, follow along with me as I read. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's quite a dense passage. There's a lot in here. And so what I want to do is take a few minutes to just kind of tease out a little bit the flow of Paul's argument. He makes four crucial steps to help us understand how salvation works. 
the first step he makes is to explain salvation comes as a gift from God. It's a gift of God's righteousness. So that's what you read in verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. He talks in the previous verse, actually, in verse 20, that we could never be declared righteous through what he calls the works of the law, by being obedient or by doing the right kind of things. That's, that's verse 20. And then you come to verse 21, and, and, and it's, but now a change has happened. Now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from law. In other words, what Paul is saying is we can now have a relationship with God and we can receive his righteousness not by obeying under the law, but apart from the law. And then you come down to verse 22, and the first four words of verse 22 are critical. This righteousness is given. We're going to look at how that's given in just a minute. But don't miss that God's righteousness is given to us as a gift. That's what Paul is saying. This new thing has happened in the coming of Jesus. The righteousness of God has been revealed and it is given to us. And it's really underlining this idea that salvation for human beings is by grace alone. It's the gift of God that we cannot earn as we saw last week. We can't merit it. We don't even cooperate with God in the earning of it. It is just freely and fully given to us as a gift. So we read those classic verses last week that we based last week's message on, Ephesians 2. It is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that's Paul's first step. Salvation is a gift where he gifts us the righteousness of God. Secondly, he then says, in the next part of verse 22, that this gift is received by faith. So he says, verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So twice in that, that little sentence, he underlines the concept that this is received by faith, by those who believe in God. And again, that's exactly what Ephesians 2 says, that we are saved through faith in him. In fact, this is really the core thing, the core doctrinal idea that grabbed Luther's heart. Luther, as I talked about a few weeks ago in telling his story, was a monk who lived under this sense of the judgment of God and the condemnation of God over his life. And for years, he struggled with this idea that he would stand before God one day and be thrown into hell because of everything he had done wrong. And Luther, as he grappled with how can I be saved and how can I be sure and how can I come to love God, because he even admitted at one point he hated God, the phrase he stumbled over was the righteousness of God. In fact, as a, uh, as a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg, he preached through or taught through in the university the, the, the letter of Romans. And he came to this verse at the end of the introduction to the, to the letter of the Romans, which says in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written in the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. And for a long time, Luther could not get this. The word gospel means good news. And Luther would go, how can the righteousness of God that's been revealed be good news? Because God is perfect. He is altogether holy. Where's the good news in his perfection and holiness? Because I fail so badly. 
And then it was only after a long time of wrestling with the word of God that he realized what this verse is actually saying. That the righteousness of God is revealed to us and we find it through faith. It is by faith, he says, from first to last. And Luther, looking back on the day he realized that, wrote these words, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which righteous people live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And he said, here I felt that I was altogether born again. And I entered paradise itself through open gates. It was the understanding that God has given his gift of his own righteousness to us, and we receive that by faith. That was the clincher for Luther. And the day he understood that, he says, that was the day that I was truly born again. I finally got it. The good news of the gospel is that God offers us his, this gift of his righteousness, and we receive it by faith. What is faith? When we say we receive it by faith, what exactly does that mean? Theologian Wayne Grudem says, saving faith is not just a belief in facts, but it's a personal trust in Jesus to save me. The facts are important. It's important that we, that we understand and believe the right thing, but it's not belief alone. It's a personal trust in Jesus to save us. Talking about the idea that, it's, it's, that faith really is only what you believe, James says in James 2 to people who were trying to make that argument, he said, you believe that there's one God. Well, good, even the demons believe that. I was listening to a lecture a couple of weeks ago on, on this whole topic, and the person lecturing said, do you know that Satan wholeheartedly believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Satan is absolutely convinced that Jesus is risen from the dead, but he's not saved. Because it's not simply a mental assent to a group of facts. It's on the basis of those facts, then entrusting yourself to Jesus. That is what faith is. So I like the way that Paul will describe it in the very next chapter here in the letter to the Romans, in Romans 4. To the one who doesn't work, but who trusts God, who justifies the godly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That's what we mean by faith. It's trusting ourselves to Jesus. So, Paul here in this dense, important core paragraph. Salvation comes as a gift where we're given the righteousness of God. We receive that gift through faith. And then he says, everyone who comes by faith and who trusts Jesus is declared righteous. That's what it says in the rest of 22 down through to the end of 24. It says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The key word there is the word that you find at the beginning of verse 24. All are justified freely by his grace. This is the introduction of a key idea in Paul's theology called justification or the, the idea of being justified. And essentially, justified comes from a legal courtroom. That's where the language actually um, originates from. To be justified is to be declared right by the judge. So you imagine a court case and the evidence is presented from both sides and then the judge at the end of that court case makes the decision or a jury does in our situation at times and either uh, um, articulates the idea that the person standing on trial is guilty, they have done what they said, and they are condemned for that, 
and sentenced, or they're declared to be not guilty. They are in the right. And that's what justified means. It's the opposite in a courtroom of being condemned as guilty for a crime. And you see this idea of the opposite of justification and condemnation in Romans 8. Paul says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In other words, God's the judge. If he's declared you righteous as the judge, who then can condemn you? And Paul says, no one. Christ died, more than that was raised to life, and he's now at the right hand of God interceding for us. So the opposite of being justified, declared right by the judge, is to be condemned by the judge. So it's, this, it's a legal term. And so what Paul says is that if we are given this gift of God's righteousness and we receive that by faith, then we are declared righteous by the holy judge. And God can do that, he says, in the last couple of verses of this passage, 25 and 26, because Jesus has taken our sin on himself at the cross. So God can declare us righteous because Jesus has paid for our sins. That's effectively what this last line here says. This last section's a little bit hard to get. Verses 25 and 26 can be quite densely packed in, but essentially what it's helping us understand is how the cross helps God from a great dilemma. The Bible articulates in both Old and New Testament that God is a loving and forgiving and gracious God. At the same time, God is also a just and a holy God. And in that is a dilemma. How can God, who is loving and gracious, forgive people for sin, which is what he wants to do, and yet at the same time remain holy and just? In fact, in the Old Testament, God comes out against judges who don't judge properly. So there's a proverb, for example, Proverbs 17, 15, that says, acquitting the guilty, so letting off those who are guilty of, of crimes, and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both of those kinds of judges. In fact, right through the Old Testament, there are commands to the judges of Israel where God says you have to dispense judge, uh, judgments fairly because that's the kind of judge I am. But that creates the dilemma for God. He is a God who longs to forgive sinners out of his love, and yet he cannot do that because he is holy and just. And so because of that, there is this, what some people have called a dilemma. Some people look at that and go, well, why can't God just forgive? Why can't God just extend forgiveness? I mean, I do that with, you know, my little kid who does something wrong, and they come and say, when my kids were smaller, sorry, Daddy, and you just forgive them and get over it. And the problem is, when you start to think of sin at a much bigger scale than a little child doing something wrong, when you start to think of it, most importantly, as rebellion against God, it doesn't add up, because we all ultimately want justice to be done. If you had your house broken into last night and a, a criminal or a gang of criminals broke into your home and ransacked it and stole everything that was valuable and they grabbed you and beat you up and tied you up and left you for dead, and if you'd managed to come back round from unconsciousness and get out of the, the tied knots that they tied you up in and call the police and the police investigated and finally managed to track down the criminals and arrest them and get them in, into the, 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 the judicial system before a judge, can you imagine how it would feel 
if the judge stood there and listened to the case and they're clearly guilty of what they've done to you and the judge then says, you know what, I feel compassionate today. It's a good day, I'm in love, I'm going to just forgive you. As the victim of that crime, you would be horrified that, that justice hasn't been done. And that's exactly the problem. If God just forgives sin and doesn't actually take it seriously as a holy God, then he isn't God. You can see this, actually, if you take it to the most extreme case. Uh, last week, I was uh, watching a documentary on this gentleman, Reinhard Heydrich. He was the second-in-command of the Nazi SS, reported to directly to Heinrich Himmler, who lead the SS right across Nazi-occupied Europe. Heydrich was horrendously cruel. He was the man who implemented all of the horrible policies that Himmler came up with. Anything that the SS was responsible for, Heydrich was the one behind it. He was immensely cruel. In fact, he was nicknamed, he became, one of his roles was to look after the area that we now know as the Czech Republic, um, based in the city of Prague, and his, his nickname became the Butcher of Prague. He was assassinated in that city by the resistance in 1942. But before he was assassinated earlier in that year, he went back to Germany and he led a conference of high-powered Nazis. They were the, the people from among the very top elite of the Nazi party who gathered together for a conference that Heydrich cheered. Their job was to take Adolf Hitler's idea of getting rid of all Jews out of Nazi-occupied Germany. And they had to come up with the, how are we going to do that? How are we going to deal with what the Nazis called the German, uh, sorry, the, the Jewish problem? And it was that committee led by this man that came up with what they called the final solution. We know that as the Holocaust. This is the author of the Holocaust. Ultimately, it was Hitler, but it was Heydrich who actually came up with that. Imagine the final judgment where Heydrich, his name is called, and he stands before the judge of all the earth. Can you imagine if God looked at Heydrich and said, I'm a loving and gracious God. I'm just going to forgive you. Six million voices would cry out, no. In fact, not six million. Millions upon millions of our voices would cry out, no. Why? Because justice needs to be done. But this is the dilemma. How can God forgive even a hydric if he was to trust in Jesus and still be a just and holy God? And the answer, Paul says in these verses, is the cross. Because it is in the cross that the sins and the penalty of sins of every person who has trusted in Jesus, that is where the penalty is paid. And because Jesus dies for our sins, and he takes the wrath of God that should have been ours, God can now declare unrighteous people to be righteous and still be the just and holy judge in a court of law. I love the way Max Licato, best-selling author and pastor, describes this so beautifully. He writes, ponder the achievement of God. He does not condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, 
nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. That is a stunning restatement of what Paul is saying in Romans 3. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that someone has paid the penalty of all sin, of all of my sins. And because my sins have gone to him, God can now declare me to be righteous when I come to him by faith. That, in a nutshell, in one passage, is the good news. And that's why Luther said this passage in particular is the, is the heart of the whole Bible. Because this is the message that God wants us to understand. That he offers salvation, his, his own righteousness as a gift. We receive that gift simply by faith. And all who do that and come to him by faith will be declared righteous by him as the judge, even though they are not, because Jesus has taken our sins on the cross. That is the gospel. And the reformers took that kind of passage and that kind of logic and other passages like it, and they summed it up this way. We are saved by God's grace alone. It's a gift. Received through faith alone, in Christ alone, who died for our sins and rose again. That is the gospel. Now, I hope that none of that is a big surprise to any of you. If you're here checking out Christianity, it might be, and I hope that this is clear enough for you. This is the message of good news of the Bible. What you may not understand is that within this message are massive debates. In fact, the interpretation of Romans 3 that I've just articulated on the screen for you is a Protestant reading of these verses. Because that is not at all how Catholic theologians would understand this passage. So behind this description, which I'm guessing most of you would go, yep, I'm happy with that, is a whole range of debates. In fact, each of these four lines had to be argued for and defended by the reformers. And what I want to do is quickly now go back through these points, through the logic of Paul's argument, and I just want to help you see what was argued and why we believe that this is the best explanation of the gospel. So the reformers would begin as they work through Romans 3 and say, salvation is a gift from God where God gifts us his righteousness. That's what it says. But there was a massive debate, and we're going to get technical, okay? Is the righteousness God gives us alien righteousness or personal righteousness? You go, good night. I'm hoping it's not alien. But actually, you want it to be alien. What the Catholic Church taught was that the righteousness that we are given is a personal righteousness. We kind of saw that last week when we were talking about grace alone. That under Catholic theology, God infuses us with initial grace, the, the first dollop of grace that we need. And then from then on, we respond to God's grace 
by doing the right thing and earning merit. And as we earn merit, God gives us more grace to energize us for more, kind of like cans of Red Bull to keep us going, until we've earned enough merits to be satisfied, except the problem is we get demerit points, like when we're driving, some of us. And, um, and so we lose our merits, and so it's, the life is this whole working out our salvation, essentially, until we get the number of merits that we need. That's the personal righteousness view. And so Catholic theologians would come to this passage and say, we are given the righteousness of God as we cooperate and work with God to earn it. And the reformers came to that and said, no, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that this righteousness of God, his righteousness, is given to you. In other words, it's not in me. It's an alien righteousness. It's outside of me. It's God's righteousness, and he gives that to me as a gift. That's alien righteousness. It's outside of me, but it's given to me when I trust in Jesus. See, and they would say that's the teaching of the New Testament. For example, you come to this passage we looked at last week, Philippians 3 where Paul said, I look back on my old life where I had to work hard to please God, and I said, I now look back on that, and I consider all of my past merits garbage because I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in him, in, in, in relationship with him, not having a righteousness of my own, not having a personal righteousness I've worked for that comes from keeping the law, I want a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, it's an, that's an alien righteousness. And the reformers, as they came to this text, came to a, a medieval church that was all about personal righteousness and you working hard, and they said, wait a minute. It's not about working hard. It's by grace alone. This is a gift. God is offering us his perfection as a gift that he gives to us. Luther instead, in opposition to the medieval church, would say this righteousness is heavenly, it's from God, and it's passive, which means I don't do anything, I just receive it. We do not have it of ourselves, we receive it from heaven. So when we say that salvation is a gift from God, behind that is this big debate. And what we're saying is, we receive it as an alien righteousness gift from God. The second line was also debated. This gift of righteousness is received by faith. But then the reformers then raised the question, well, hold on, what kind of faith are you talking about? We agree that it's trust in Jesus, but is that a, a receptive faith or a contributing faith? Is my faith just receiving what God has done or does it somehow contribute? The Catholic belief was that our faith contributes. This is what their current statement of faith, their 1995 catechism says. Justification, it reads, establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. On man's part, it is expressed by the assent of faith to the word of God, which invites him to conversion. In other words, to be justified, to be declared righteous by God, there's God's part, which is grace, and there's our part, which is faith. So whatever work we do 
to earn merit, we do that by faith in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus. But we work at that so that some of our salvation is what God has done in grace and some of it is what we have earned by our faith. And the reformers again stood up and said, no, that isn't what the Bible teaches either. Because the Bible puts faith opposite, mutually exclusive to any kind of work. So you read passages like a verse just in the next paragraph in Romans 3. We maintain a person is justified, declared righteous by God, by faith, apart from works of the law. You can't say that your faith contributes to your salvation, as though that's your bit of the pie that you have done. That's not how it works. Our faith instead is receptive. We don't contribute to what God has done We simply receive what God has done. So last week when we were talking about grace and the idea of merit, and we talked about, you know, we used the 20 merits idea, that's the initial grace from God, and then you work by faith in response to grace, and then as you work and merit more, God gives you more grace, all of that kind of thing. And we got to the end of that and said, but the real message of by grace alone means we receive all 100 merits, just like that from Jesus. And our faith doesn't earn us any merits. Our faith doesn't contribute to the gift at all. It simply receives what God has done. It is a receptive faith rather than a contributing faith. Luther puts it this way. Faith just takes hold of Christ and believes that my sin and death are damned and abolished in the death of Christ. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner actually sums up Luther's teaching this way. It is vital to see that justification for Luther is ultimately and finally not grounded on faith. Rather, faith is the means by which one lays hold of Christ, who is our righteousness. He says, faith is not the ground of our salvation, it is the means of our salvation. To go back to our big idea, technically we are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace, through faith. Faith is the way we accept what God has done. Schreiner will go on later and put it this way in his book. What saves believers is not ultimately their faith, but the object of their faith. What saves us is not ultimately our faith. It is our faith in Jesus. That is a critically important thing to understand. We are not saved by faith alone, full stop. We are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what makes faith workable What makes faith help is it's faith in Christ. It's the object of our faith, not the fact we have faith. So the question we need to ask ourselves is not, do I have enough faith? Have I mustered up enough faith as though I'm contributing by my faith? The question is not, how much faith do I need? The question is, where have I put my faith? What is my trust in? Let me explain it this way. Over the last couple of summers, we've been building a deck at home, and the deck 
It's pretty much finished, apart from some railings, which we legally need to finish. But anyway, the deck itself is fine and legal, just not the railings. Imagine, though, that I decided I wanted to do the deck in a hurry. And so rather than going through all the rigmarole of digging holes and concrete and in posts and then building the deck, I just thought, you know what, let's just speed this up. Let's just lay some planks out on the ground and stick up some vertical posts just straight off that and nail a deck on and, and she'll be right. And imagine the day that I finished nailing it all on and the family were all standing together in the family room looking out the ranch slider at, at this fabulous new deck. And my boys would go, you go first, Dad. Because that, you know, there's no post, there's no concreting in, there's no nothing. It's just kind of all sitting there nailed together. It does not matter how much confidence and trust I have in my workmanship. I can step out on that kind of deck with total faith in my ability as a builder and it will not save me. Because if I stepped out onto that kind of deck, it's all over over. That thing is just going to collapse, regardless of how much faith I've got. The issue is not how much faith do you have. By the way, that's the common Oprah Winfrey definition of faith. It just matters that you have faith, that you have belief, bollocks. What matters is what is your faith in? Because you can have faith in a whole bunch of stuff that is going to let you down. What is the object of your faith? That's what Schreiner is saying, and that's what Luther said. We are saved through faith alone. That's how we receive, but that faith has to be in the right object. That faith is in Christ alone, the sole mediator between God and man. We are saved by grace alone. It is the basis of our salvation is what God has done. The way we receive that gift is through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the good news. And the reformers had to argue strongly, our faith does not contribute. We are simply receiving all that God has done. We are receiving the full hundred merits of what Jesus offers us. So, salvation comes as a gift from God, and it's a gift of alien righteousness. That gift is received by faith, which is not a contributing faith, it's a receptive faith. We just receive it. On that basis, Paul said, we are declared righteous. So, what does that mean? Because once again, the reformers had a massive debate on their hands. When we, you say you're justified, when you say you're declared righteous by the judge, God is the judge, does that mean you're pronounced righteous or made righteous? Because for a thousand years before the reformers, the, the Catholic Church had preached the idea that to be declared righteous by God as the judge means you're made righteous. That comes because of a misunderstanding by a guy called Augustine. He was a fourth century theologian. Very, very good guy. In fact, much of what the reformers taught got picked up by Augustine. But on this point, they said Augustine got it wrong. Augustine studied the Bible, according to J.I. Packer, in Latin, using what was called the Latin Vulgate translation. And he was partly misled by the fact that justifare, which is the Latin word for justified, 
normally meant to make righteous. And so Augustine developed a theology that the medieval church then picked up for a thousand years that to be justified meant to be pardoned and made new. So for a thousand years, the church had taught that justification meant pardon plus inner renewal. So what they meant was this. Justification is the idea that God one day will declare you righteous. He will do that at the final judgment, way, way down the track, down the, at the end of time. And what's going to happen is in the process, justification means you're being made righteous. So one day when you get to the very end, after you've worked really hard and responded to God's grace and worked all the merits and everything else, finally when you're perfect, when you've been made righteous, God will then declare you righteous. Now, that's partly true, not the made righteous bit, but the future bit. Because sometimes in the New Testament, justification is described as something in the future. So, for example, famous passage in Galatians 2. Paul says, We know a person is not declared righteous by obeying works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. And we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified. That's future. He's saying that so that one day we, will be, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, he says, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying there's a sense in which one day God is going to declare us righteous at the final judgment. And that's, that was the Catholic teaching. So we're made righteous until one day we're finally righteous and then God's going to declare us. Hey, yep, now you're righteous. The difficulty that the reformers came across and why they changed that view and disagreed with Augustine, which was a big deal for them, was that other times in the Bible, it talks about our justification happening already in the past. For example, Romans 5.1. The passage we talked at last week about we're in this grace in which we now stand. Look at what it says. Therefore since we have been justified through faith. We now have peace with God. This isn't future at all. Paul here is saying, we now have peace with God in the present because in the past, we were declared righteous by God. Same thing in Titus 3. God saved us through the washing and rebirth of the Holy Spirit, whom he's poured out generously on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified in the past by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So sometimes in the Bible, we talk about justified, meaning one day God is going, at the final judgment, is going to declare us righteous. But equally, there are other times in the Bible that say, you know what? God's brought that, that statement forward to now. In fact, to the past, to the moment you trusted in Jesus. And when you put your faith in him, when you trusted in him, at that moment, God brought that statement from the final judgment forward to that moment when you trusted and said, you're righteous in my sight. And so the reformers come along and said, to be righteous is not to be made righteous. It's to be declared righteous the moment you trust Jesus. The problem here is that Catholic theologians are sometimes talking in different terminology than Protestant theologians. And what happens in this case is that Catholics have merged two ideas. 
Justification, this idea of being declared righteous by God, they've merged it with sanctification. Sanctification is this process that lasts all of life, of becoming holy, being made more like Jesus. So what Catholics have done is they've merged the two. So again, the catechism, justification is not only the remission of sins and therefore the declaration by God as the judge, it's also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. So they merge them. They say the whole thing is justification. But that means justification has got to be over a period of time. It's a process. So God can't declare you righteous or holy until you really are. I want to illustrate it graphically for you. I hope you like my drawings. Those are trucks if you're struggling to realize what on earth I've drawn. So the top one is Catholic theology. Justification and sanctification as one big truck. But because sanctification is a process, because you and I aren't holy yet, that means God won't declare us righteous until we really are holy. Protestant theology says no. Justification and sanctification are two different things. They're linked. That's why it's a truck and trailer, in case you don't see my picture properly. So they go together, but they're quite distinct things. Because while sanctification is a lifelong process, that justification, that's a one-off event. And it's not dependent on sanctification. That's why, why one day you'll stand before God in the final judgment and he will declare you righteous. He's already declared you righteous the moment you trusted in Jesus. That's happened. That's the event. Now, based on that, you are in this process of being changed and sanctified. That follows your justification. They're distinct things. They're not the same. But they go together. So that's why you'll see, for example, Hebrews 10 is a passage we looked at when we looked at Christ alone. When this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. Now look at this, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever already those who are being made holy. We are both declared to be righteous in God's sight, and we're still in the process of becoming righteous. Understand how that works? That helps us to understand where good works come in. When we're looking at Ephesians 2 last week, we talked a little bit about works, and Paul's very clear that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. Because salvation is by grace alone, our good works contribute zilch. But then we saw in verse 10 that Paul would go on to say, but we are his masterpiece, his poema, his poem. We're his handiwork, recreated now in Christ Jesus to do good works. So in other words, Paul says, good works don't save us, don't contribute to salvation because it's by grace alone. But you should expect good works will flow out of your salvation. What Paul is saying is this. There's no good works in the truck. There's always good works in the trailer. That's where the good works are. You're not saved on the basis of good works. But if you've been saved, God, you are going to be transformed. So the reformers would say, we are saved by faith alone but not in a faith that is alone because good works will always follow. 
That's why in um, James, sometimes people stumble over James chapter 2, where James says we're justified by our works or we're shown to be righteous by our works. And people look at that and go, what on earth does that mean? James is writing to a completely different audience to what Paul is in Romans. James is writing to some people who were saying that they believe in Jesus, but they don't really have to worry about anything else after that. They, they don't need to do any good works. They don't need to do anything. They've trusted in Jesus. Sweet, now I'm just going to do whatever. And what James is saying to them is, you can't just have, have the truck. The truck and the truck, they're two different things, but they go together. So he's talking to a bunch of people who are saying, we've got the truck and that's all we want. And James is saying to them, buddy, if you ain't got the trailer, you ain't got the truck. Because they go together. They're not the same thing, which is where the Catholics have got it wrong. But they always go together. Our good works don't contribute to our salvation. But they flow out after, as God transforms us. That's how theology works. So that is why Luther could write these famous words. We are truthfully and totally sinners with regard to ourselves. On the contrary, or at the same time, as far as Christ has been given to us, we are totally holy and just. So he's saying we're, true, we're totally sinners and we're totally holy and just at the same time. Hence, from different aspects, he says, we're said to be just and sinners at one and the same time. And then he, he used this Latin phrase, simul iustus ec peccator, in Latin, simultaneously just and sinful. The Roman Catholic Church, I think the year or two after Luther died, had a council where they rejected the doctrines of the Protestant Formation and they definitely said that is wrong. They still believe that is wrong to this day. But Luther got it bang on. Because justification is a different thing to sanctification, we are declared fully righteous in the sight of God and at the same time we're still people in process who are being changed. We are simultaneously just and sinful. Which is why in the next chapter in Romans, Paul will say, God justifies the ungodly. Catholics don't know what to do with that line. Because the ungodly aren't righteous yet. But God declares us to be righteous through Jesus. So, how does that happen? Well, Paul said in Romans 3 that all of this is based on the death of Jesus. The question that the reformers had to then wrestle with finally is, okay, so this righteousness of, Jesus, of God that we're given, is this infused into us or is this imputed to us, counted to our bank account? How exactly does that work? See, Catholics had looked at this whole idea that God could declare you when, man, you all are just sinners. I'm looking at you, I can see it. And Protestant doctrine is God's declared you righteous already. And the Catholics are going, there's no way that's true. That's legal fiction. God cannot declare you to be righteous or you to be righteous or you to be righteous if you're not righteous. And the reformer said he can because the righteousness we have is not infused. It's not personal. It's not earned. It's not in us. Instead, this righteousness from God is imputed to our account. It is accounted to us. 
put into our bank account so that when I stand before Jesus, it's his righteousness that counts. That's exactly what is described in 2 Corinthians 5, what a second century theologian called the great exchange. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, all of your sins, past, present, and future, were passed to Jesus' account. And he paid the penalty. And so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, all of his righteousness and perfection is placed on your account. Luther said through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And all that he has becomes ours. The imagery he used actually was compelling. Luther said, you and I, we're like prostitutes who have gone after anything we want. And in the process, we have incurred, incurred huge debts that we can never repay. But the prince of heaven, vastly wealthy, has offered to marry us. And because we marry him by faith, he out of his wealth pays off all our debts and gives us his status so that we are now royalty and debt-free and incredibly wealthy. Not because we earned it, but because we're in relationship with him. See, that's the good news. Salvation has been given to us, an alien gift of righteousness that is received by a receptive faith. We don't contribute, we simply receive it. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we are declared righteous. Not one day at the end of time, but the moment we trust in him, God declares us righteous. Why? Because Jesus paid for all of our sins and his perfection is now credited to our account so God can declare you and I righteous right now, even when we're still in process of becoming holy. That is the gospel. And the reformers had to fight tooth and nail to get it. But this is what they said. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And where Catholic theology takes off each of the alones and adds other things, the reformer said no. The basis of our salvation is God's grace alone, no other merit. We receive that through faith alone, no other works, and our faith is in Christ alone and no one else. That is the good news. I am obviously in this whole series disagreeing with the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, both in Luther's day and even today. I want to be clear, though, that doesn't mean that individual Catholics may not be genuinely saved. In fact, the Reformers said they believed that there were many in the Catholic Church who were their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I don't think we automatically write off every single Catholic. While the theology of their church is wrong, there are a number who believe this. And so in spite of the theology of their church, they're genuinely saved. 
and they will be in heaven with us for all eternity. But they won't get into heaven because they're Catholic. They'll get into heaven through Christ alone, by trusting in him alone and God's grace alone. When I meet a Catholic person, I don't assume that they're going to heaven and they understand this. Just because they go to church regularly doesn't mean they're saved. But the same is true of a Baptist. The same is true of a Presbyterian and a Salvation Army-ish and a Pentecostal and a member of Botany Life. We are not saved because we attend church regularly or because we agree with all the facts. We are saved when we personally embrace this truth and put our trust you've never done that today, I want to urge you to take this gift while it's on offer. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can contribute. Jesus has done it all. And to trust him simply means to trust him instead of yourself and accept the gift of life. I was going to put a prayer up on here to pray with you which we sometimes do, and it's okay to do that, but I don't want to do that today. Because I don't want you to feel like there's some particular words or a prayer you have to pray. It's not a prayer. It's a decision of your heart to put your trust in him. And so I want to invite you to do that if you've never done that. Use whatever words or thoughts you need to to give voice to that heart decision. If you are saved today, I want you to understand a couple of core things. Number one, your faith has never contributed to your salvation. You don't bring anything. You've just come with empty hands to a saviour who did it all. Please never, ever assume that your faith has somehow played a part, that your faith has brought a little bit of the equation. It is all of God. It is all of Christ. It is all by grace. All you and I have done is accept the gift he gave. The other thing I really want us to understand today is that this incredible free gift that we can never earn and don't do anything except receive, while it is free to us, it was immensely costly to God. We say it was, it's free, and it is for you and I. But it cost God an incredible price. He became a human being. He walked through a broken world. He endured agony and grief. He suffered temptation. And then he went to the cross. And he did not only endure unbelievable mental and physical anguish as he died for our sins, but even deeper, he endured God's wrath against sin for us. Everything you and I have ever done 
and will ever do was poured out onto Jesus. And the altogether holy one drank down the cup of wrath to the last drop. Our salvation is free. But that doesn't mean it hasn't cost him enormously. So as we finish this morning, and as we contemplate the beauty of being saved by his grace alone, through simple faith alone, in Christ our mediator alone, I want us to finish by spending some time meditating on the beauty of the cross. So I come back to these words from Lucado. Ponder what God has done. The band is going to come back up now. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs that just help us focus on the cross. And I just simply want to invite you to just take this opportunity to really think deeply about what it costs Jesus to offer you free salvation that you only have to receive. If you want to stand and sing along to these songs, you're welcome to. If you want to just sit and meditate, you can. If you want to move the chairs slightly and kneel, you're welcome to do that. We're just going to do these couple of songs that help us focus on the cross, and we have communion up here that you can just come and take bread and juice when you're ready to, to remember Jesus. But I just want to invite you to take this time and realize, rather than dismissing our sin, he assumed it, and he paid the sentence for us. In the cross, God's holiness was honored. In the cross, our sin was punished. In the cross, we are redeemed. And it's because of the cross we can simply come by faith. Just take your time. Meditate on this. The beauty of the cross. Take communion when you're ready.